beginning in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Father, thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, faith, and a word is what we need. We ask you to increase our faith, Lord. And for those here this morning, perhaps there are one, perhaps there are more who have never believed. May this be the day that this Jesus becomes the object of their faith and their love. We pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. The resurrected Christ. As you see in the bulletin, the resurrected Christ comes to struggling believers every day. But he especially comes to struggling believers on the Lord's Day, the first day. He set it up that way from the beginning. It's a creation ordinance. And then he codified it, fourth commandment. And in the New Testament, he restated it. The words of our Lord in Mark chapter 2 and in Mark chapter 3. 
And here John sets it forth as the continuing time for God's people to gather in perpetual worship, communion with Christ and one another. We saw this last week. The first day theme was right there on the first day of the week, Mary came. We had Jesus coming to Mary in the morning time. And now we have Jesus coming back to the disciples in the evening, the evening of that same day. Now, John is making a big deal about this first day thing. As I said last week, he could have just said, three days, Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, and on the third day I'm going to rise. John could have very easily just said, just like Jesus said, on that third day, he rose. But he didn't. He makes the point over and over and in a moment over again that it was the first day. And he even goes out of his way, as we'll see in a moment, so that no one misses the point that that day he's talking about is the first day. So there can be no confusion. He's stressing this thing. He's pushing it. And remember, as we've seen all the way through our, our working through John, John's writing with purpose. He's not just... Not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke weren't writing with purpose, but God had a different purpose for them. They were telling a story. They were telling a story about a Savior. And they were making the historical case that this one was the Messiah. Really, truly. John, on the other hand, is taking the history and he's making a theological statement. And the primary point of the, of the whole book is, just as we've been saying over and over, and is now he's told us one more time, very clearly, right here at the end, what's the purpose? Why did I write this? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose. He's giving a whole series of reasons for you and for me to believe this Jesus and to place our faith in this Jesus. And here he's giving more. So he's making theological points all the way through. He doesn't always follow the, the chronology that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. He takes those, those events in the life of Christ and he teaches us theology. So it shouldn't surprise us that he's doing it again. He's making some theological point here. And one of the points is the first day, the emphasis on the first day. Now, this is lost on some people. A few years back, I preached through the book of Mark, the book of Bark. Uh, that, you, know, you get those letters flipped around. Uh, the book of Mark. And when I got to the latter part of Mark 2 and the early part of Mark 3, there the Lord Jesus is dealing with the Sabbath. 
And the Pharisees are accusing him of violating the Sabbath. And he says, no, I'm keeping the Sabbath. You're the people who have perverted the Sabbath. I'm keeping it not simply by worshiping, but also with deeds of mercy and necessity. So, James Edwards, who who wrote a very fine commentary, a modern commentary on the book of Mark, one of the good recent ones, makes the comment as as he sets that up, he says, the reason a lot of people miss Mark 2 and 3 and how Jesus is reaffirming the fourth commandment, he's not changing anything. It's because the church has largely lost the concept of the Lord's Day and the Sabbath, the modern church. And he's right. Let's go for a drive. No, let's don't. Let's stay right here. But let's, in your mind, we could go for a drive and we would see, and we don't have to go out to the malls and out to the shopping centers. We go to the churches, and we could see that people have lost any reverence and awe for worship. And the Lord's Day has been, been truncated to Saturday night or Sunday morning. It's not the Lord's day anymore. It's the Lord's moment. Edwards was right. The reason people don't get the significance of those kind of passages, Mark 2 and 3 in his case, and I would suggest now on the first day, on the evening of that day, and then we're going to come back eight days later in verse 26, That's the first day, by the way. The Jews reckoned inclusively. We count Sunday to Monday, one. Monday to Tuesday, no. It was Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. It was inclusive. So eight days would get you from Sunday to Sunday. So John does it again. You're saying, this is getting kind of monotonous. Well, I'm sorry. He was monotonous, so I'm being monotonous. I don't want you to miss it. Because in our church culture these days, it's easily overlooked. And so we have a low view of the Sabbath, and our people are not properly nourished and cared for and sent out into a wicked world well prepared. All right. With that said, let's start. The Lord's Day evening with Jesus, verses 19 through 25. Then we're going to move to the Lord's Day morning with Jesus. That's down in verse 26 and following. And then one last comment about those last two verses that we've played over and over as we've worked through the whole book of John. But first, the Lord's Day evening with Jesus. John, notice, doesn't leave the far demonstrative to any confusion. On the evening of that day, anyone who writes And anyone who reads much knows that the near and far demonstratives are notoriously misunderstood. What's the this? What's the this that's referring to? Or what's the that that's referring to? 
What's the antecedent to this and that? And we, we throw this around a lot. And particularly, don't put a near demonstrative, this, at the first of a sentence. That's just begging for confusion. That I've just pleased every English teacher and grammarian in the room. So having accomplished that, Sean did it a few weeks ago with the Oxford comma. So I can do it too with the demonstratives. But you notice John doesn't, he, he starts. Now, on the evening of that day, and then he says, the first day of the week. Let me clarify what that day is. The first day of the week. That's when they're meeting. So here we are. Mary and Peter and John running to the women. Mary is the one highlighted by John. We discussed that last week. But the men then run. They take a look. Yep, he's not there. They go back to the house. Mary stays. And the Lord comes and deals with her weeping, her sadness, her weariness. Now we are later in the day, the evening, and the Lord comes again. Now I'm not going to restate what I said last week, but for the benefit of first-time guests, I'll say this much. It's not insignificant that we see this morning and evening pattern. Because we had that in the Old Covenant, and we have it here as, the, as John wants us to see it. Now, notice what it says. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Why were they afraid of the Jews? Well, they've been afraid of the Jews. Because what are the Jewish, and by the way, when it says the Jews here, it's a reference to the, to the Sanhedrin, particularly the chief priests. We've, we've already covered that. There was, there was a chief priest, but then there was the, the whole family of the chief priests were recognized and they had Godilla pull and this is a scary time this Jesus whom they have declared allegiance to they've declared him their Lord well everything was pretty pretty smooth and going to be easy for them as long as he was dead but he's not anymore. He's up. Up from the grave he's arisen. And, and, and they don't know what the religious people may do. Because now they've got a problem. What do we do with this Jesus that's not in the tomb? Even if he's dead, who knows what these disciples are going to say. They're, they're going to say, hey, he said he was going to be risen. So even if somebody just dragged him off and hit him someplace... You know what they're going to say, and that's going to cause problems, just like it's been causing problems with him being around and alive. So the disciples are fearful. And it says, and we're going to read this twice, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Rob Plummer up at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary does a, does a wonderful little daily dose of Greek uh, series that uh, I have recommended to many people who it's a good way to keep your Greek fresh. 
Rob Plummer commenting on this. He says, it's, it's, it's like he says in the, in the Greek, it's like he says, uh, oh, and by the way, those locked doors couldn't keep Jesus out. Because now he's not, a, not, not just the God-man, but he's, he's the God and the resurrected man. In other words, his body is not susceptible to the laws of, of nature, per se. So walls have no defense against Jesus. Now, I would never say this, but I did hear a pastor one time say, it's kind of like he was Casper the Friendly Ghost. Now, some of you youngsters haven't partook of Casper, uh, but when I was little, Casper was a, a cartoon character. But that's not at all what this is like. This is a real body, but supernaturalized, glorified. And it's, there's no barriers. He doesn't need to open the door. He could have. He could have picked the lock. I mean, he picked Thomas's brain lock here in a few minutes. He wasn't there when Thomas said, hey, guys, I'll have to poke the holes and nope, don't believe it until I do it. But Jesus, the supernatural, the God man Jesus knew he said that. So he addresses him here in a moment. But you need to not miss that. Jesus didn't go through the door. It's locked. John wants you to know that. And he comes to them in their fear and says, peace be with you. By the way, the use plural, peace be with y'all. Or if you prefer, peace be with you all. Or as our Philadelphia friends, you say, peace be with use. He's talking to all of them. Now let's just say a word about this peace. It's in the Greek, of course, Irene, but it comes over from the Hebrew shalom. And when when we read of shalom, when we read of peace in the Old Testament, it carries with it everything. We think of peace. Okay, I'm at peace. I, I can live with this. But shalom was a much more than that. It was peace. It was courage. It was perseverance. It was boldness. It was comfort. It was everything. So when Paul, uh, Paul the apostle opens his treatises with grace and peace to you, he was saying grace all that you need for salvation and peace, everything you live for life, everything you need for life, you got it. That's the blessing. And it's interesting. Jesus comes. They're afraid. They're shuddering. They're huddled up behind locked doors. And the first thing, apparently, at least John wants us to know, the first thing he said was, yeah, hey, you got everything you need. I'm it. You don't need anything more. I'm here. That's important. That's important for us. 
We all have to be reminded of that, don't we? And if you think you possess everything you need, young folks, look at me. If you think you possess everything you need and you don't need Jesus, wait a while. Go talk to Tom Matthews. Go talk to Doc Satterfield. Come talk to me in private, not in public. We are so dependent and we like to act so independent and we are so. And Jesus says, but I'm all you need. But here's the thing. If you've not come to that point where Jesus is all you need, you're lost like a ball in high weeds. And if you die right now, you're going to hell. Everything you need for life and death is Jesus. And that's what he says. Peace be with you. And he doesn't just say it once. Did you see it? When he said this, he showed them his hands. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Okay, this peace is already taking effect. The fear is being replaced with gladness. Peace is having its, having its way with them. And Jesus says again, peace be with you. It's like a double dose. And that's, that's the way with Jesus. More than, he's, he's more than we need. He's twice, he's three times what we need. As my friend Ian Hamilton, not the baseball player, but the, the pastor. As Ian Hamilton would say, his grace and I can't say it as beautifully as his Scottish tongue can say it. But his grace is more sufficient than all of our sins. I mean, we can sit and we can just think. You run into people occasionally. Oh, if you just knew how bad I am, it doesn't matter. His grace is bigger than that. And that's what's going on here. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. This isn't just a, hey, I want you all to feel better. Hey, I want you all to, to, to get over this fear, and I'm here to help you get over your fear. I'm here for this, uh, this psychological counseling session so you can feel better about yourself. That's not what's going on. Peace be with you because I'm about to send you out. You're about to go outside these locked doors. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now just, you can just draw a little dotted line down your marginalia, through the marginalia there, your Bible, down to verse 25. So the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He sent them, they went. You say, what? How do you know they went somewhere? Because Thomas wasn't there. They had to go to tell Thomas they had seen the Lord. That's what peace, genuine peace, peace in Christ will do. You don't just sit around and, and read your Bible, although that's good. You don't just sit around and pray, though that's good. You don't just show up on Sunday morning, although that's a little good. You don't just 
No. The peace of Christ, everything you need, puts, puts you on your feet. And then he tells us how that's possible. When he has said this, I'm sending you, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the agent of our peace. He's the one who, who gives us peace that passes comprehension. Go to Galatians and you'll find in the Apostle Paul the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruit, one aspect of the fruit, the singular fruit, is peace. The Spirit produces that in us. The Spirit keeps that in us. When we fall into sin, when sin surrounds us, the Spirit is there to energize us with peace, everything we need. And then he says something about the, the keys of the kingdom. Because he's talking to the disciples here, who are now the apostles. They're the sent ones, the extraordinary gifted ones, the ones that Paul tells us what the definition of an apostle is, is someone who's seen the Lord and someone who can do signs and wonders. You've got to have both those qualifications, by the way. So if you meet some, some charlatan out here that says he's an apostle and he can do signs and wonders, but he ain't seen the Lord in person, then you've got an imposter. Don't try to fool with him. Just run. Or her. We've, we have some apostolettes, too. So just, just run. Get a flee, flee. Flee, the Bible says, from evil. That's evil. But these apostles, they're given some authority here with this special endowment of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not back to Genesis with, remember, Adam was shaped from the dust and then having a body, the Lord breathed that's Ruach, that spirited them with life. In other words, the spirit, the soul was breathed into them, into, into Adam and Eve. That's, that's similar to what's taking place in John. John does this thing with, with, with Genesis that we've seen. He began, in the beginning was the word. That was supposed to remind you, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now he's breathing spirit not to give them life, but to give them living. That they can go out. They're being sent so they can go out in the, in the fullness of the spirit, with the power of the spirit, and do the work that God has for them. And one of the things the apostles were given, and then their ordinary successors, the elders of churches is back to Matthew 16, the keys of the kingdom. Whatever is loosed, whatever is bound. You can go back and read it in Matthew 16. Here, John puts it in this word, in these words, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. You say, whoa. The apostles had that kind of 
So they could say your sins are forgiven or they could say your sins are not forgiven. Yeah. It's in the perfect tense, by the way. That's pretty powerful. Don't have time to go into that. You say, but they were just men. Yeah, but they had the authority of Christ. They spoke with the authority of Christ because they were imbued with the Holy Spirit. See, when when your elders are dealing with, with someone who's in sin, and after much counseling, after much patient time with them, they see repentance. They see faith growing. They see a hatred for that past sin. And they say, brother, sister, you're forgiven. Your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. You can be restored to the Lord's Supper. You can be restored to church membership. You declare them forgiven, they're forgiven. And see, it's based on what God says, not what we conjure up. On the other hand, there's those sad times. Those of you who've been part of covenant long enough know you've, you've heard the announcements, you've read the announcements of some recalcitrant sinner that says, no, no God for me. I'm a member of the church. I took those vows. I said I was a sinner. I said Christ was my Savior. I said I would walk as a Christian ought to walk. I said that I would worship, I would support the worship and the work to the best of my ability. I said I'd submit to the governance of the church. No, I'm done with it. I'd rather live in sin. And the elders have to say, then you're not forgiven. There's no forgiveness for you. If you're going to live in sin... There is no forgiveness. If you're going to continue in sin, John, the same John in the first epistle says this. If you keep on sinning, then the truth is not in you. That's what's going on here. Nothing more but nothing less. When the elders of the church, as with the apostles in that time, declared what God says... Faithfully, it was true. And there's no changing it. But God's mercy. So that's the evening. That's what took place on that evening. It's a pretty full evening. John summarizes it, but I've talked it out a little bit, and it's a full evening. Next to the morning, eight days later. In the meantime, they've encountered Thomas. They've told him. He said, nah. But notice something happened. Because on that eight days later, the next first day, his disciples were inside and Thomas too. So even though he, he appears not to pay attention to them during the week, whenever they found him, something brought him back. Now I want to encourage you. You think you're telling people and they don't seem to pay attention. They don't seem to see the importance of what you're saying. Keep on. I suspect Thomas probably said, well, I tell you, I'll have to see it myself. And then nothing happened all week. 
He could have very easily come Saturday night. Could have very easily said, you know what? Jesus could have come and shown me by now. If he's not going to, I'm going to play golf tomorrow. I'll just sleep in. But something brought him into the gathered midst. And there they are again. And again, the door's locked. And again, Jesus doesn't care. And the first thing he says is, peace be with you. And then he turns his attention to Thomas on that second Lord's Day morning after his resurrection. And he knows because he's God what Thomas has said. And so he just, he just sticks out his hands. Hey, Thomas, put your finger here. Give me your other hand. Put it right here where they, where they stuck the sword in. And do you notice? Thomas doesn't do it. Because that's not how faith comes, by touching. Just like Mary, last week we saw, when Jesus said her name, she, she fell at his feet and said, Rabbanai. And now Thomas says something even more profound. My Lord, my God. Notice, he doesn't say, Oh, the Lord of the universe. Well, he does, but he personalized my Lord, the Lord of my life and my God, the one who's almighty, the one who rules over me and the one who is the covenant faithful one, my Lord, my God. That's how he responds. Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? And then he says something to us. He said it to Thomas and to the other disciples, but it's for us too. Don't ever forget that. God's word transcends time. It transcends audiences. He says, blessed are those. Here's the second distinct blessing we read about in these Lord's Day occurrences. The first is peace be with you. That's a blessing. Now, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You and I have never seen the Lord with our eyeballs. And yet, because the Spirit works in our hearts to change our hearts, being born from above, we see the kingdom, we enter the kingdom by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus, I'll I'll clarify my pronouns here. Jesus says, we're blessed. And there's a sense in which we're even more blessed than those disciples who saw him face to face. So anytime you're tempted to say, boy, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just see him do something, don't do that. We're blessed for believing and having not seen. There are special blessings for us. That's remarkable, isn't it? Not surprising, is it? Back to John 17, Jesus not only prayed for his disciples who were there with him, first half of John 17, but the latter half of John 17 is for whom? Those who would come later, those who would believe later, 
It is not surprising Jesus would say this here in the midst of the disciples. That's the second Lord's Day. John stops there. We don't know what happened that evening. Pretty spectacular, no doubt, when he gathered with his people. The last thing, the last point, very simple, the dominion that Jesus shows. You say, yeah, how did you get that point? How did you come up with that particular phrasing for this, these three verses? The Lord dominates history with efficacy because that's what it says. Jesus did many other signs. So the appearing through the locked doors was a sign just to kind of clue you in. That's the antecedent to that statement. But he did many others the books don't even contain. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed, the Christ. And in believing, you might have everlasting life. See, he dominates history. It's going to happen. That's what John's saying. I've told you all these things. And just like it's happened with Thomas, it'll happen over and over and over again. You'll believe because of what Christ has done and because of who Christ is. The question is, do you believe? Is your confession Thomas's confession? When we come in on the Lord's day, And we hear the call to worship. Our response in our hearts should all be my Lord and my God. And as we leave with the blessing, peace be with you, my Lord and my God. And as he sends us out of this place today, we should be just like these disciples. We should be filled with his peace, with his comfort, with his perseverance, with his presence and go. And tell people that we've seen Jesus. And they'll say, you're crazy. You'll say, let me tell you what I mean. And then you talk about faith in Christ. So the question is, do you believe? All these reasons to believe. If you don't believe, it's no one's fault. Because God's given you every reason in the world to believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We love you. We ask your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.